The following sermon is by our senior pastor, Grant Castleberry of Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 9 o'clock a.m. every Sunday morning. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We are continuing our study of the Gospel of John, and we are in a series on worship in John 4 and this encounter that Jesus has with the woman at the well. Look at verse 22, what Jesus says to her. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Brief prayer. Heavenly Father, what we know not teach us what we have not give us, and what we are not make us. For your sake, amen. This is our last message on worship from John chapter 4. Some of you are saying, good riddance, we need to keep going. It is the last message. So far we've covered the universality of worship, the object of worship, that God alone is to be the object of our praise and worship, and no one else. We've looked at the mediator of worship, that Christ and Christ alone is the mediator of all true worship. All true worship must go through Him, otherwise it does not count. We've looked at the supremacy of worship, that this act of worship, what we are doing here this morning is supreme in the heart of God. This is what God cares about most. We evangelize and we go out on mission to win people to Christ so that they may become worshipers. This is the highest end for which we were created. And then we've spent the past few weeks looking at the requirements of worship, how God requires us to worship Him. God is very specific. You notice what Jesus says. He says, look, if you want to be a true worshiper, how do you have to worship God? He says you have to worship God in spirit and in truth. That's the delineation between true worship and false worship. Now, this word worship that Jesus uses is the Greek word proskuneo. And it literally means a bowing down to God, a bowing down to God. And that's really what true worship is. It's a bowing down in your heart to God. Now, people are worshiping everywhere. Everybody, like we said, is a worshiper. Everyone is bowing down to something. Everyone is. There was a rap concert in Houston just the other night. Everybody wanted to get so close to, to the stage that several people died. And someone called me from Texas, and they said, you know, everybody's worshiping. It's just a question of what they're worshiping. We're all bowing down to something. 
and we are to bow down, Jesus said, in spirit and truth. And by spirit, what Jesus means is our soul, our spirit. I'm using those interchangeably, that we are to bow down in our hearts to God. And by truth, we are to bow down and worship God as He really is, not as a figment of our own imaginations. God has revealed Himself in creation and in His Word, and we are to worship Him truly, and we are to worship Him in the way that He desires to be worshiped. So the first commandment, if you remember the Ten Commandments, the first commandment is a prohibition to worship God and God alone. The second commandment is a command to worship God the way that he desires to be worshiped. We're not to make a graven image and call that God. We're to worship God strictly in the way that he desires to be worshiped. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. Six and finally, the elements of worship. And by elements, I mean the components, what we do in the corporate worship service, what we're doing this morning. Many of you, when you got in your car this morning and you were driving on your way to the church, you expected certain things to be in the worship service, right? You probably came in and you expected to sing some sort of hymn, some sort of Christian song. You expected there to be a sermon. You had expectations this morning. But what would you do if you just kept coming and we just started cutting some of those things out? You know, we just stopped singing. We no longer sang any hymns. And maybe one of you came and asked me about it and you said, why aren't we singing anymore? And I said, well, you know, after that Josh Turner thing that happened a few few weeks ago, we decided to go out on top. We're we're no longer going to sing any more hymns. And one of you would quote to me, as you should, Ephesians 5.19. It says, well, the Scripture says we're supposed to address one another in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And you'd be right. Or what if we started to add certain elements to our worship? This became a real thing in the early 2000s. People said, we want to express our creativity in the worship. We're creative people. That's how God made us. So we want to express the creative giftings that God has given us in our worship. So what if you came in this morning? I'm going to use an extreme example, but just so that you can understand. But what if we had a couple gospel trapeze artists here in the auditorium? We had one right up there in that corner another right up there in the sound booth. And at the end of the service, I said, okay, you know, we've got something really special for y'all, just really amazing. And now, it, it, I know it sounds distasteful, but it's, it's, we're going to do it to good music, and it's going to be creative, it's going to be artful, and they're going to swing out, and they're going to shout, shout as they swing, Jesus saves. Is that fine? Now, some of you, I, I hope all of you would come up to me and say that trapeze artists got to go, right? I hope all of you would say that. I hope all of you would say, look, where is this found in Scripture? I mean, what are we doing? If, if, it's, if it's this, it's going to be something else 
next Sunday. We're, you know, it's just going to be according to our own whims. I hope you would say, look, prove why we should be doing this from the Bible. And that's exactly what you should say. And by the way, that's what the Protestant reformers said at the time of the Reformation. They said, look, the, the way that the Roman Catholic Church is worshiping, you've added all these things that aren't found in Scripture. Where does it say that you're supposed to pray to certain saints? It just says that we're supposed to pray to God as our Father. Where does it say that the Mass is a, a new sacrifice of Christ? That's not found in Scripture. And also, you've subtracted certain elements that Scripture says are supposed to be there. You don't actually read the Bible to people in their native tongue. They read the Bible in Latin. There would hardly ever be an actual sermon that was preached. So not only have you added things to the worship, you subtracted what God has said is supposed to be there. And one of the manifestations of the Reformation in England. When the Reformation came across the English Channel to England, one of the reforms that quickly happened is they stopped giving at the ordination of the priest vestments. And instead of giving them priestly vestments, you know what they gave them? A Bible. They said, this is your new job in worship, is to read the Bible and teach the people the Bible. Because worship is going to be according to God's Word, according to Scripture. This is what the Puritans then said. This is about 120 years after the Reformation began. This is what the Puritans in England said, the 1644, the Church of England. They said, this is from the Westminster Confession, quote, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any way not prescribed in the Holy Scripture. Basically, what they articulated is this principle of worship, that we are to do in our corporate worship exactly what God says not more, and not less. And so if you study the New Testament, there are five essential elements that you see the early church using in their worship, and you see commanded to be used in their worship. Do you know what they are? I asked my children this last night at the dinner table. Think about it. What are the five elements that we are to have in our worship? Prayer, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, reading the Word of God, preaching the Word of God, and you remember what's the, the fifth? The ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Now, there's other things mentioned that are more secondary, such as uh, making vows uh, or oaths. And, and actually, we're going to do that next week. We're going to bring some parents up here, and they're going to make some vows that they're going to train their children in the fear and the discipline of the Lord. Uh, you also see sacrificial giving, uh, sometimes testimonies, but those aren't the regular things. Uh, the five that I just mentioned, those are the five things you see recurring over and over again in the New Testament church's worship. And there's flexibility in those. You know, the, the Bible doesn't say how many songs that we're supposed to sing. It doesn't say how much Scripture we're supposed to read. It doesn't say how long the sermon is supposed to be or what we're supposed to preach on. 
There, there's a lot of flexibility, but what I'm arguing is, is that we are to do those five things. It's simple, in no more, in no less. But our temptation is, I think, to add to it. Like, couldn't we just dress it up with a good drama? Couldn't we just have a drama every week or some display of art up on the platform? We want to worship through art. Our temptation is we want to add to what God has commanded. And let me give you just four quick arguments for why I think we should not, why we should only do what Scripture says we are to do in the worship. First, if the disposition of our worship is to be in reverence and awe, as Hebrews 12, 29 tells us, reason would seem to demand that we worship corporately in the explicit ways that God commands. That God says, look, I desire to be worshiped with holy fear and reverence. And so why would we presume to worship God in a man-contrived way? Second, Paul in Colossians 2.18 prohibits some elements of worship not found in the New Testament. He says, quote, let no one disqualify you. Disqualify you from what? From, in, from true worship. Insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. Going on in detail about visions. You could, you could put into that category modern meditation puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. So there Paul's saying, look, there's some expressions of worship that God is saying you are not to do in, in the worship service. Third, it is presumptuous of a minister of the gospel to neglect the biblical elements of worship and to bind people's consciences with extra biblical elements of worship. Let me explain what I mean by that. When you came this morning, you came to worship God, and you came to worship God according to how God says that you are to worship God. If I start adding things, then I am putting those things on your conscience, and I am essentially compelling you here this morning to worship God in that way. And quite frankly, I don't have that authority. I don't have the authority to say, look, you will worship God in this way that's not found in Scripture. And what happens when you do that is you're actually taking away from the things that God has said by which we are to worship Him. If we're spending time doing a drama program, what are we not doing? We're not reading Scripture. We're not praying. We're not taking the Lord's Supper. We're not preaching the Word. We're not singing. So when you start adding things, you start taking away from the very things that God has said are to honor Him and also what? Minister to your soul. To minister to your soul. God has specifically said that these things bring the Word of God to your soul and make you more like Christ. Fourth argument, and I think, this just has been tattooed on my heart. Christ is the chief shepherd of the church. Peter says in 1 Peter 5.4, he says, when the chief shepherd appears, 
you will receive the unfading crown of glory. That title, Chief Shepherd, is archipoiamen. It's a compound word. Uh, arch or ark uh, comes directly over into English. It's where we get our word archangel or arch nemesis. It means supreme. And poiamen means shepherd. Peter's saying that Jesus is the supreme shepherd, that he is, if you will, the senior pastor of every church. He has the authority over his church, which he purchased with his own blood. He has ultimate authority. I don't have ultimate authority. The elders don't have ultimate authority. Christ has ultimate authority over his church. And so, I believe we must worship the way Christ said we are to worship. Well, you might ask, well, how do we know how Christ said we are to worship? How do we know? Is there a worship manual? In fact, there is. Do you remember in the upper room, Jesus said to his apostles, this is John 16, he says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority. So what you have in the epistles that the apostles wrote are the instructions that Jesus is giving to us on how we are to live and how we are to worship him. This is the manual. You just read Acts of the Apostles on into the epistles. This is the manual by how we are to worship God. So let me just quickly walk through these five elements and explain them to you. First, prayer. Praying the Word. I say praying the Word because all these things are given to us, the instructions in Scripture. Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer. In a sense, we're praying the Word of God back to Him. We're praying the Psalms back to God. We're praying in the way that God tells us how to pray. Prayer is communion with God. It is entering the throne room of God. It is addressing God in confession, intercession, adoration, praise, and thanksgiving. And it is to define our worship. In a sense, all of our worship is prayer, all of it. Jesus, in Matthew 21, 13, called the temple the house of prayer the house of prayer, because prayer defined all of the Old Testament church's worship. Then, Jesus, do you remember, Jesus had a remarkable prayer life. He was always slipping off to pray. And it's remarkable, I find, that his disciples, out of all the things that they could have asked Jesus to teach them, to preach, to heal, all those things, what did they ask him to teach them how to pray? Jesus Teach us to pray like you do. And Jesus, remember, gathered them around and taught them how to pray, and he modeled prayer. He was always leading them in prayer. In the upper room, in the Garden of Gethsemane, he was always leading them to the throne room of grace in prayer. And so it's no surprise that after the early church is founded, Luke records in Acts 2.42 that the church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. 
that that's what they devoted themselves to, is prayer. Can that be said of Capital Community Church? That we are a church that devotes ourselves to prayer. That is really defined and marked by our corporate prayer. Paul told Timothy, you remember this, in 1 Timothy 2, we looked at this just a few months ago. Paul said to Timothy, to the ch- regarding the church in Ephesus, he says, first of all then, I urge, I urge Timothy that supplications, that prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. He's talking about in the, in the corporate body of the church. For kings and all who are in high positions that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Paul says, I urge you, Timothy, to lead the church in prayer. Why? Because Paul believed that through, through prayer, God was powerful enough to change the circumstances that they were facing. I heard Sinclair Ferguson say once, he said, I don't believe in prayer. I believe in the power of God, so I pray. Do you believe in the power of God? That God is sovereign, that God is providentially ruling and reigning, and He has the power to change every circumstance, to bring people into the kingdom of God. Jesus believed that. Remember what Jesus said? This is Matthew 9, 37. He said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into his harvest. Jesus believed that if we prayed, that God would respond in power. And it's this that that the church discovers in times of reformation and revival. The church discovers the power of God that is unleashed in prayer. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, prayer is always a great feature of every revival. Great prayer meetings, intercession, hour after hour. They pray for these people, talking about lost people by name, and they plead, and they will not let God go, as it were. They are intent on this with a strange urgency. Let me just make a couple practical suggestions to you. One, make a habit of praying on your way to and from church. I know it's hard. I know you're getting, it, getting in the car and you got your coffee. Many of us, you have kids, but make a habit of trying to pray to and from church. Pray for me, that the Lord, or whoever's preaching, would speak through the preacher and pray for those that are hurting, that the Word would minister to them. Pray for those that are lost, that the Lord would save them through the preaching of the gospel, and pray for those who need to be encouraged and equipped for ministry. Also pray as you're leaving. Pray as you're leaving the church that God's Word would continue to bear fruit in people's lives. Another suggestion. I believe that the health of a church is seen in the attendance of its prayer service. 
we have a prayer service every first Sunday night of the month. And guess what? That's tonight. That's tonight. You can put your beliefs into shoe leather tonight. Come and pray. And I promise you, you will begin to see God work in remarkable ways. And I'm going to challenge you. Bring one or two people on your hearts to pray for tonight. Someone in your life that's lost, that doesn't know the Lord. Someone that needs encouragement. Think about those people this afternoon and come tonight and pray for them. You might not stand up and pray before the congregation. I would encourage you to do so if the Lord puts that on your heart. But pray for them in your heart. And as other people are praying, pray with them and agree with them in their prayers. So that's praying the word. Second, we're instructed to sing the word, to sing the word of God. And literally, this is what the Old Testament saints did. They, what the Old, Testaments did, Old Testament saints did at the tabernacle and the temple is they sang the Psalms. Uh, the Psalms were the Old Testament church's hymn book. And that's why you see those little inscriptions to the choir master a lot of times underneath the psalm. They would take that psalm and put it to music. And, and that's really what the early church did up until the 1700s. Isaac Watts, you probably have heard that name, started writing some hymns. And at that point, the church started singing other songs in addition to the psalms. But for the, for the majority of the church's history, they literally sang the psalms to meter. I know that's something we normally don't do. I was once asked, I was, I was with a group of theologians and pastors, and, and a Scottish person, Scottish people sing the Psalms to metric. And this person, out of the whole group, put me on the spot and said, do you know the second stanza of the 23rd Psalm? And I, I was ashamed that I didn't. I don't know. I've never, I'd never sung the 23rd Psalm before. But that's what the church has done. And, and where do we get that? Well, that's what Paul says, Colossians 3.16, he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And then he essentially says the same thing in Ephesians 5.19. He says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. Now, there's some flexibility there. He says, sing the Psalms, but you can also sing these hymns and spiritual songs. So it doesn't have to be all Psalms. We should certainly re sing some Psalms. I, I think you probably noticed this morning we sang Psalm 150. That was the first uh, song that we sang. And a lot of people now are starting to put Psalms to music uh, that's singable. I praise God for that. But we can also sing uh, other hymns and spiritual songs. So there's flexibility. And for that reason, a lot of churches fight over the songs and the music because there is flexibility. And people, you know, you talk to everybody. You know, if I were to do a survey with 50 different people in this congregation, how many different opinions do you think that there would be on the music? 50. Everybody has an opinion on the music. Now, let me tell you here at Capitol what we're trying to do. 
just so you, just so you can know. And, and by the way, w- one of the things that's important is, is going back to Scripture and saying, okay, can, how can we sing in the most scriptural way? And then second, how can we sing in a way that puts our brother and sister above ourselves? We're not just saying, look, it's got to be my way to do this or the highway or I'm leaving. We, we need to be able to say, look, I want to sing in a way that honors the Lord and also puts other people's preferences ahead of my own. Now, that doesn't mean that your preferences aren't important. They're very important. We want to know what your preferences are. But that being said, if everybody had their own preference, we would be doing you know, everything from having maracas up here to having the organ going. It would just be the, the whole uh, plethora of different type of styles. So let me give you just how, when we're looking at songs and, and choosing music, just how we're thinking through this. First, we try to sing songs with the most truth, the most truth. So there's, there's a lot of songs out there that, that are truthful, but we want to sing songs with the most truth. And most often, that's the, the proven hymns that have been sung for hundreds of years. You know, you look at what Isaac Watts wrote, and you compare that to what's being written today, a lot of what he wrote is way better if we're being honest in terms of the content and the truth than what's being written today. We wanna sing songs with the most truth and that's because we believe that the higher the truth that we sing, the deeper our worship will be, the higher our worship will be. Second, we we, we wanna sing songs that are singable, sing songs that are singable. Uh, some old hymns and even some newer songs, uh, many are written in octaves that are difficult for the adult male to sing. They're written for middle-aged women and 10-year-old kids to sing. We want to sing songs that everyone can sing, that adult men can sing. Look around. By God's grace, He has blessed our church with men. Men are probably the least, uh, least likely population to attend church on Sundays. But we want to sing hymns and songs that men and women can sing. And we want you to sing men. Third, we want to sing songs that are beautiful. We want our, our music to be good and beautiful and honoring to the Lord. And we want to add instruments over time. I know Jake's working on this. We want to add piano and strings and things that, uh, that add beauty and, and, and uh, form to our worship that are uplifting and honoring to the Lord. And fourth, we want to sing songs that point you to faithful musicians and sources. Um, a lot of contemporary worship, and, and I go on Spotify, and, and I'll go through, and I'll listen to a lot of what's in the top 20. A lot of the worship will have one line in the song that is either inaccurate or outright false. And for that reason, I'm not going to sing that song. That would kind of be like singing the ABCs to your children, but it's missing an R and, and puts in another letter. I'm not going to do that because it, the whole thing might be right, but then I'm teaching, teaching you in error with that one line. 
Another unfortunate thing that has happened in the past 15 years is that word of faith theology has taken over the Pentecostal wing of the church. Word of faith theology. And by Pentecostal wing, there's basically three groups that produce a lot of modern worship. And if you talk to young people, they probably know exactly who these three groups are. They're Bethel, Hillsong, and Elevation. And what has happened in those churches, in those movements, is that the word of faith theology has completely taken over. Now you ask, what is word of faith theology? Word of faith theology believes and teaches that Jesus was not the Son of God at his birth, but became the Son of God at his baptism. When the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus at his baptism, he then became the Son of God. He was adopted by God as the Son of God. Now, here's how it manifests itself then. Word of faith theology teaches just as Jesus became the Son of God, you too can become the Son of God like Jesus. You see it? If Jesus could become the Son of God, then you too can become the Son of God. And just as Jesus had the power to speak miracles, you too have the power to speak miracles. That's the word of faith. And that's why people at Bethel, you probably saw this a few months ago, a little kid died and they were speaking over him, trying to raise him from the dead. That's why Stephen Furtick at Elevation Church just a few months ago said, I am God. Everybody thought that that was a mistake. It wasn't a mistake. That's his theology. He believes he's a mini-God, just like Jesus, just like Jehovah's Witnesses, just like Mormons. This is their theology. So the song might sound orthodox, but what they mean behind the song isn't orthodox at all. Jesus is a type of the Son of God. You can become like him as the Son of God. So what I don't want to do is, even, even if the song sounds great on paper, I'm looking at who it's being written by and produced by. One, if we play their song here, we have to pay them money. I don't want to do that. I don't want to pay money to heretics. Second, I don't want to point people to sources that are going to lead them astray and lead them away from the faith. And you might ask, does that really happen? Yes, it does. My cousin started listening to Bethel music and went out to Bethel Church to the School of the Supernatural. This was four years ago, five years ago. Got sucked in completely to that theology. Ended up basically becoming a universalist. Now denies the substitution of Christ, denies basically all of it because he got sucked in. The, the music is the gateway into the bad theology. And so you have to be so discerning. You have to be so careful because these days, a lot of the worship music is being produced by that Word of Faith movement. Now, Costi Hinn, who came and spoke here a few weeks ago, I heard him say, look, one of his goals is to start producing modern worship for, that honors the Lord in his sound and its theology. And we need to, to lift up people like that are, that are doing that good work. But I can promise you that Jake comes to me and I look through every song 
and I look at who wrote it, and I look at the, the theology in that song, and we're trying to do our best to put the best theology and the best singable music before you. And, and this is my prayer. My prayer is that in the throne room of heaven, that capital would be known as a singing church. That God at 9 a.m., yes, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time in heaven says, I can't wait for capital to sing. And that we would all sing. You know, we've been doing the doxology at the, at the end of every service. And it's like, man, I wish you could be up here. Because it, it's just erupting in how y'all are singing and praising God. I can just see it. You're praising God with all your hearts. And that honors Him. So we want to be a singing church and, and, and sing the word well. Man, we're only done with two points. Okay. Reading the word. I'll do these quickly. Reading the word. Paul told Timothy, he says, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. Devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. You know, when we read the Word of God, Kenny, myself, one of the other elders, one of the things that we often say is, is this is the Word of the Lord after we finish reading. And we say that because it is. It is the Word of the Lord not just the word of the Lord that was written way back when, but it's the word of the Lord now. The Holy Spirit, when the, the word is read, the Holy Spirit is literally speaking. Now, this is God's holy word. Now, unfortunately, I think that the reading of the word of God in evangelical churches has become one of the most neglected practices. One of the most neglected practices. Mainline churches, you know, you go to some of the, the mainline churches here, the old Presbyterian Methodist churches, you know, they no longer believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of the Word. But you know what's interesting about those churches? They still read it. It's the evangelicals who claim to believe in the inerrancy and inspiration of the Scriptures that no longer read the Bible in their services. But we want to read the Bible. This has been the practice of the ancient church, of uh, Protestants through the years. Uh, Matthew Henry, do any of you have Matthew Henry's commentary on uh, the whole Bible? Matthew Henry, what he would do is in the morning he would read from the Old Testament in, in the evening service, he would read from the New Testament, and as he read, he would make comments on the Scriptures. That wasn't the sermon. He would read for 30 minutes every service and then simply make comments on the This is before the sermon begins. His comments on the Scriptures are what were put and made into that commentary. So his people were constantly hearing the Bible read cover to cover, year in, year out. And they, they knew their Bibles because they were hearing it read. Spurgeon did the same thing. 
Spurgeon would read through the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, cover to cover throughout the course. But I mean, as, you know, let's say he picks up, he reads Genesis 1 one week, he would read Genesis 2 the next week, Genesis 3 the next week, so on and so forth, continually. And so he would read through the entire Bible uh, before his sermons throughout the course of the year. And we, we've been doing this, we've been reading uh, God's Word. We try to choose an Old Testament passage that uh, coincides with the New Testament passage we're preaching, or if we're preaching an Old Testament passage, we'll try to, to, to pick a New Testament passage uh, to read. So this morning we read from Nehemiah and Ezra reading the Scriptures from the book of the law and how that pricked the consciences of the children of Israel, just the reading of God's Word. And I think one of the, the marks of a healthy church is the sound of pages rustling. When Kenny got up to, to read that passage, I could hear this, people trying to find the passage that Kenny was reading, trying to find Nehemiah, where is it, you know, is, before, the, before the Psalms, you know, people are trying to find that in their Bibles. And that's a healthy thing. You should be turning to, you should be bringing your Bible in turning to that passage in the Bible to read the Word of God as it's being read along with the reader. Fourth is the preaching of the Word. The preaching of the Word. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.2, he says, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. This is my definition of preaching. Preaching is the explanation of the Word of God and the exhortation to believe it and obey it. So it's not just teaching. We want to teach the Bible. We want you to know the Bible. We want you to teach it. But more than that, or to, to, to know it, I want to teach it. But more than that, we want you to believe it and apply it. We want you to obey it. One theologian, John Murray, said that preaching is a personal passionate plea, be ye reconciled to God. It's this, it, it's exhorting and encouraging and rebuking people and saying, look, this is what God says. This is who Christ is. Believe in Him. Obey Him. He's your Lord. Love Him. That's what preaching is. Now, many say, that preaching is an outdated mode of communication. It's a leftover from a bygone age. You know, why do we still do preaching? We're in the, the day of YouTube and Netflix. Why do we come here and have a preacher? Couldn't we just listen to, to messages or, or things like that during the week? Why is preaching still a regular part of the worship service? And the answer is because it's the God-ordained means that the Holy Spirit uses to create faith. The Holy Spirit uses preaching to create faith and to sanctify His people. Paul says this in Romans 10. He says, How then will they call on Him in whom they have not heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? Preaching is what brings faith. Alistair Begg, 
said, I love this, he said, I don't believe that drama awakens faith in Jesus. I don't believe that art awakens faith in Jesus. I believe that preaching awakens faith in Jesus like nothing else does. It's preaching that awakens faith in Christ. It's preaching that sanctifies you. And that's why Paul said, Colossians 1.27, he said, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning and teaching everyone that we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's my prayer every morning, is that Christ would be proclaimed here and that you would be more conformed to His image. That you would leave more Christ-like. Now, I'm fine with you taking some pages of notes and learning. Yes, do that. But that isn't nearly as important as what's going on right here. And you being changed by the Holy Spirit through the Word. Preaching, friends, is powerful. Not because of the preacher, but because of the Holy Spirit who uses the preach Word. I heard a story of a man named Luke Short. Luke Short was a colonist here in America, uh, was in New England. He lived to be 106. What I'm about to tell you occurred when he was 103 years old. He was 103 years old, and he was walking in his fields, reflecting on his life. And he remembered a sermon that his pastor as a boy had preached, named John Flavel, 85 years before, when he was 17 years old. And he remembered that message, and he was converted. 85 years later, after that preacher had long been dead. That's powerful. That's the power of the preached Word of God. And then lastly, is seeing the Word, the ordinances. The ordinances are given graciously by the Lord Jesus Christ to us so that we could see and feel with all our senses the Word of the Gospel to us. And you remember Jesus gave us the Lord's Supper on the night of His betrayal in the upper room. He said, he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And you remember also when Jesus instituted the ordinance of baptism at the Great Commission, when all the disciples were around, he said, Go ye therefore in all the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So those two ordinances, or you could call them sacraments, are the two ordinances that Christ has given to his church to regularly practice. Now, they're both New Covenant ordinances. And what I mean by that, and this is important, is that baptism is the symbol or the marker of entrance into the covenant. And the Lord's Supper is the symbol of covenant renewal. So when we take the Lord's Supper here in a moment, 
you will be renewing your covenant with the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is your Lord and you are His people. And so you should be baptized, that's the, the marker into the covenant, before you take the Lord's Supper, which is the marker of covenant renewal. Uh, baptism comes before the Lord's Supper. Oh, these are symbols. They're not automatically dispensing grace as the Roman communion has taught. The Roman communion has said, look, if, if you're baptized, you're automatically regenerated. If you take the Lord's Supper you're, or the Mass, you're automatically receiving grace. We don't believe that. We believe that they're symbols. But yet, even though we believe that they are symbols, we believe that there is a spiritual element taking place when we take the Lord's Supper. That's why Paul said some of you are taking the Lord's Supper wrongly and you're sick because you're taking the Lord's Supper without repentance. There's a spiritual element involved. The Holy Spirit is ministering to us even as we are taking the Lord's Supper and in baptism. I was talking to uh, a woman the other day, and this woman had doubts, some doubts about her face. She's like, am I, am I really a Christian? And I said, don't you remember your baptism? And you proclaimed your faith in the Lord. She said, yes, I remember you see, baptism, it, it, the Lord knew that we would need, as, as weak people, a visible symbol that we could feel and touch to remind us of our faith, which is unseen. And that's why Robert Bruce, who is an old pastor, he said, in the Lord's Supper, we don't see a better Christ, but we see Christ better, because we're literally seeing what Christ has done for us with our eyes, and we're tasting it with our mouth. All of these five things are given to us in the New Testament to worship God truly and rightly. And moreover, Paul says that they are given, this is 1 Corinthians 14, 26, for the edification of the saints. We need this. You need worship. You need to worship because you need Christ to minister to you through his word. And then you become more like Christ. You become more edified. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we come and take the Lord's Supper, that you would minister to us, Lord. Minister to us. May we consecrate our hearts before you. May we live for you because you died for us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.